<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to another edition of The Water Cooler, everyone. I'm your host, Nicholas Balassi, in for David Brody. Happy Friday, and thanks for being with us today. It's been quite a busy week in politics, especially on Capitol Hill. We're here to help you sort through it all. Authorities are searching for a motive today after a gunman fatally shot eight people and injured at least seven others after storming a FedEx facility in Indianapolis. Stay tuned and up to date on this story at justthenews.com. Also, will Washington, D.C. become the 51st state of America? We're not quite there yet, but it is one step closer than before as the House Oversight Committee voted to approve a Washington, D.C. statehood bill on Wednesday. The bill makes its way to the House floor next week. Washington, D.C. Shadow Senator Paul Strauss will be joining us later in the show to discuss this further. In other news, Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler and Democratic Senator Ed Markey introduced a bill that would add four justices to the Supreme Court, which at the present time would create a liberal majority on the court. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says the growth of the U.S. economy might necessitate increasing the size of the Supreme Court, but she added that she does not have plans to bring the bill to the House floor anytime soon. Our next guest is our first guest on the show, former Democratic Georgia State Representative Vernon Jones, who endorsed President Trump in the last election and made headlines when he announced his run for Georgia governor, taking on Governor Brian Kemp. He joins us now following the announcement. Mr. Jones, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get right into it. I wanted to find out why you decided to throw your hat in the ring for governor and, and get into the campaign. Well, first of all, failed fail leadership from our governor to protect election integrity. You know and I know that our election system was taken over by election fraud. Uh, the executive branch, along with Stacey Abrams in a back room, Secretary of State and the governor, they cre created a, a, uh, an agreement that pretty much opened up mail-in balloting and voting in Georgia. Uh, it was not constitutional because only members of the General Assembly can do that, not the executive branch. And to add insult to injury, this governor did not fight for election integrity, and it cost us two United States Senate seats, and it cost us the election of President Trump. And so when you have someone that's willing or afraid of Stacey Abrams, want to cave into Stacey Abrams, that's going to hurt Georgia, that's going to be a part of taking away our civil liberties, bringing in socialists and communism, uh, communist ideas and ideologies, that is concerning for me. I want to put Georgia first, um, just like the president put America first. And so it's a leadership issue. I have the executive experience. I've, I've been county executive for eight years. 
I've had more experience than the governor himself in running the government. So it's a natural fit. I want to move Georgia forward. I want to fight that council culture, fight the left, not be afraid, and represent all Georgians. Well, I wanted to ask you kind of how your history in the Democratic Party might impact some of the voters in the Republican Party in Georgia. So let me ask you, what would you say to a voter who may be wondering why they should support you, given your history in the Democratic Party, now as a Republican, what would be your pitch to them if they're on the fence about voting for Kemp or voting for you? Well, first of all, I've always been conservative, and that's been consistent, uh, whether I was a Democrat or not. fact of it is, I didn't leave the party. The Democratic Party left me. Now here they are. They want to defund police. At the same time, they want to embrace Black Lives Matter, who's coming in with an agenda that's Marxist and socialism. Then they don't believe in fiscal responsibility. They want to raise taxes. And I am a, I'm a very big proponent of school choice, where many communities, their children are trapped in failed schools, especially the minority community. And I think parents know better about what's, what's good for their child and their child's education than the government. And so those basic uh, parameters there, those basic uh, subjects, those basic, basic issues are important to those folks in Georgia. But more importantly, we cannot continue to move forward with an election that people can feel comfortable with in Georgia. The election, current election, I should say the current election system, it needs to be replaced. Day one, I'm coming in as governor, and we're going to take a hard look at what out there that's American-made, and we're going to put something in place that people feel comfortable with, that their vote is going to be counted, and accurately. And only legal people can vote. Now, the Georgia election law, the new one, has, you know, been greeted with a lot of controversy. One of the issues with the law that the critics are latching onto is the photo ID requirement for absentee voting. Do you agree or disagree with the election law and how it handles future elections? Uh, let me tell you, it's a step in the right direction, but it wasn't due to the governor. The legislative branch did that. The governor didn't move on it at all to clean up his mess. And then he tried to go in another dark room and sign that piece of legislation uh, and try to take credit for it. Then he signed it in front, in front of uh, a, a portrait of a plantation house and how offensive that could be to some. So when you look at this governor trying to grandstand with this theatrics, he threw it away, the opportunity. He should have called a special session to address that issue early on. All of the, the um, agreements that they made to Stacey Abrams that was not in the purview of the executive branch, that should have been removed and removed immediately. Now, again, it was a step in the right direction what they did. There's no Jim Crow law there, but they could have gone farther, which I am planning on to, and that is the current voting system. It has to be replaced. It's, it's just too questionable. What would be the top thing you would want replaced and changed from what the election law is doing right now? The actual voting system. I think a lot of people's confidence have been lost in this voter system. And we want something that people can feel comfortable with that's American-made, and we, know we won't have the abuse or even the cloud over it. So that's where my goal is, and that's, what, that's the number one thing, to make sure that Georgia is holding free, fair, and transparent elections. Now, we all know that the MLB moved the All-Star game out of Georgia over this new election law, but... Recently, Will Smith, who's the producer of the Emancipation film that's being produced uh, out of Georgia, he decided to move it from Georgia to a location they haven't disclosed yet. 
What's your reaction to the decision to take that uh, production of that movie out of Georgia? Well, it's consistent with the abuse of Black Lives Matter, for example. Uh, the founder of Black Lives Matter, one of them, you just heard that she bought a $1.4 million home, and ironically, she built it or moved into it in a white neighborhood. So th that, that's the hypocrisy. At the same time, Major League Baseball left, if they're so into statistics, they would have seen in Georgia that 51% of the city of Atlanta is African-American. Where they moved it to in Denver, only 9% is African-American. Look at how many African-American businesses, how many African-American fans, and fans in general, businesses in general. It's to the tune of $100 million. Again, that's the failed leadership of our governor not to have had those conversations with the chairman of Major League Baseball to make sure that they understood what was in the legislation. Coca-Cola, same time, uh, they are telling their employees to act, to act less white, but at the same time, they want to criticize and say there's something about this voter law that they haven't even read. Delta Airlines, you and I both know, you have to have an ID to get on a plane. Otherwise, you won't make it. So the hypocrisy of those who are trying to come up and be a part of cancel culture, but at the same time, they're not even reading the legislation. And their hearts are not really in place in terms of diversity. If that were the case, let the Major League Baseball call a meeting with all of its owners. It may look like a Ku Klux Klan meeting. So if they're concerned about diversity, wouldn't it be there? Well, that's a, an interesting point. I mean, these corporations who've come out against it, a lot of them require photo ID to take advantage of their services. In fact, that's something that Herschel Walker, who's from Georgia, brought up during a discussion I covered recently with him. He was talking about how these corporations who are so critical of this election law, why don't they put their efforts and their energy and their dollars behind getting minorities to obtain photo IDs so they're able to not only vote, but they're able to take advantage of all kinds of services that require a photo ID from opening a banking bank account to other things. What would be your reaction to that? Is that a cause that you would get involved with, helping uh, minorities obtain these photo IDs? First of all, that's a myth. Minorities have IDs. They have IDs when they're checking in hotels. They have IDs when they're checking out a library book. They have IDs when they're in, in senior citizens' facilities. They have an ID uh, even when they get the COVID shot. So you know what? That, that, is, uh, that is just being intellectually dishonest. What it really is saying, though, that white liberals think that black people are too dumb or too ignorant to even want to have an ID, and they want to hold their hands. Why not have an ID? You have to have an ID when you go and vote in person. And by the way, when you look at New York state laws, New York state laws, they should be calling those laws Jim Crow laws because Georgia goes a lot farther to provide uh, uh, voter participation than New York state and Colorado. So the, the irony of that, and Will Smith. I Thank like you so much, Mr. Jones. I really appreciate it. We have to leave it right there. We've got more coming up. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Our next guest is Congressman Brian Babin of Texas. He's a member of the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, 
which is in the spotlight now due to President Biden's infrastructure and jobs plan that he rolled out recently. Congressman, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Nick. Looking forward to it. So I wanted to start with infrastructure because you're on the committee and I've done some math on President Biden's American jobs plan. It's $2 trillion. The White House put out a fact sheet about what it covers. But the Biden administration is saying it's going to create 2.7 million jobs. So I did a story on how that amounts to about $740,000 that taxpayers would be on the hook for per created job if we use the 2.7 million figure. Uh, do you see it end up costing that much in the end? And uh, do you even like what you've seen from the plan so far or you dislike what you've seen? I dislike what I see. I'm very leery, very skeptical uh, of, uh, you know, they say Greeks bearing gifts, be careful. Uh, well, you know, also the Trojan horse brought in some, uh, uh, some spies that opened up the city of Troy to conquest by the Greeks. This is a Trojan horse bill. It's, uh, we've seen them before, especially this, uh, uh, you know, in this session. Uh, we keep talking, they keep talking about COVID bailouts and infrastructure and jobs. Uh, but quite frankly, it's a payoff. We see that very little of these bills have anything to do with infrastructure, with COVID relief, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it's, it's basically a payoff uh, to the teachers unions, to uh, uh, the, 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 the cronies of the Democrats. Uh, and, and quite frankly, not a whole lot of input. In fact, no input at all uh, from the Republican Party. Uh, they run these things through. Uh, there's been no uh, negotiations. There's been no input, no committee work. And this is just another Trojan horse Democrat bill is what it is. Well, Biden is saying the plan's going to create good paying union jobs. He's really focused on the union aspect of the infrastructure and jobs plan. But the uh, unions, they represent about 10.8% of the workforce, according to the labor statistics for 2020. Uh, do you support targeting those uh, union jobs uh, through this bill and spending the $2 trillion, possibly the 740000 per job? No, absolutely not, because there, there will be provisions in here that will hurt right-to-work states like uh, like the state of Texas. Uh, certainly, I have a lot of, uh, uh, of people who support me that are in unions, but the unions themselves, uh, why should someone who's not a member of a union have to pay dues? Uh, this is going to go straight to the union bosses. Uh, we've seen in Biden's skinny budget, for instance, uh, Nick, uh, where the, the largest plus up of any aspect of, uh, of government or, or our, our economy uh, is, is uh, education. And uh, here we are in the middle of a uh, pandemic and, and a uh, you know, influx of, of hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens. And they give us a, you know, less than 1% or about 1% increase in the budget for Homeland Security. And yet with education in, in uh, Biden's budget, we get a 40 to 45% increase. Uh, I mean, it just it goes right along with what, what we're talking about here on this infrastructure uh, jobs bill. Well, the jobs plan hasn't been drafted into legislative language yet. Pelosi saying it could be May or June and it won't be finalized till maybe July or August. So 
Why do you think so many Democratic lawmakers are asking their constituents to support the jobs plan and then calling on Congress to pass it? <laughs> the same reason, I guess, that uh, President Biden talks out of one side of his mouth and says, uh, we want uh, we want bipartisanship. We want to have uh, uh, I'm the president of, of Republicans and Democrats uh, and we want their input. And yet Miss Pelosi uh, shuts us out of the process and we wind up with bills that are strictly one sided uh, Democrats, uh, socialists, far left uh, bills that are going to just do nothing but add to the, an already bloated uh, $28 trillion uh, national debt. And uh, it looks like it's going to continue. Uh, they have a very, very narrow majority, Nick, uh, in the House and in the Senate now. And uh, I think that uh, they've got to be worried about what this is doing to their chances in 22. You can't keep spending this kind of money. It doesn't grow on trees. They're spending it like drunk sailors. And uh, every man, woman, and child is going farther into debt. And my grandchildren are going to ultimately wind up having to pay for this, hopefully with a solvent uh, federal government. But there's no guarantee with what we're seeing today on all the big spending uh, uh, things that they want to have. Uh, what would be your quick prediction on that? I mean, do you think it will be bipartisan? Pelosi saying she wants bipartisan support. Or do you think they're just going to use uh, reconciliation again and get it done without the Republicans? Well, as I hope that they would be bipartisan about this, because I think the American people expect us to, to work together to, to, to solve the problems, and there are many fold problems in this country right now. Uh, but yet, when they here they are, they've they've already uh, they're already talking about uh, reconciliation, which rams this through without a single uh, Republican vote uh, necessary. Uh, so it looks to me like this is what they're trying to do. They talk a game. Uh, but their actions speak a little bit different, uh, uh, you know, a different story. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm worried. It's just kind of like the border situation. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the President Biden was warned, you know, keep some of these programs and policies of President Trump or you're going to look at you're, you're looking at problems on the border. It's already happening. And so we have to have bipartisanship here. And if we don't, I think uh, really not not much constructive is going to be done except uh, running up the national debt. Speaking of the border, are you surprised that both President Biden and Vice President Harris haven't visited the southern border in person yet and don't have any official schedule yet to do so? Well, you know, it's been almost three, in fact, over three weeks ago when President Biden uh, named uh, Vice President Harris to be his border czar. She hasn't been down there, neither has he. It doesn't look like they have any uh, uh, any intent whatsoever of going. Uh, the vice president, being the czar, the border czar, not having uh, visited really worries me. And I can just tell you that uh, uh, there's an unmitigated disaster. There's child abuse going on. There are uh, 19,000 unaccompanied uh, minors came across being being kept in, uh, I, in facilities where yes, they're 400% I'm going to have to jump in, but we'll come, we're coming back with the next guest very soon. Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, welcome back. Our next guest is Washington, D.C. Shadow Senator Paul Strauss. He's been serving as the Shadow Senator in D.C. since 1997. Welcome to the show. Great to have you. Great to be with you, Nicholas. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, no problem. I wanted to get you on because statehood is is in the news because of the vote and the markup that happened uh, in the in the house so i wanted to kind of get your take on where we're at with it right now starting with some of the highlights from the actual hearing a republican member was talking about how congress should consider allowing residents of dc to vote in maryland as opposed to making dc its own state what's your response to that idea well, we don't want to vote in Maryland. Maryland doesn't want us to vote there. We're not part of Maryland. We haven't been since 1790. The state line between Maryland and Washington, D.C. has existed uh, since 1790. It's one of the oldest state borders. So we have states that have far fewer people than, than Maryland. I mean, Wyoming could use some more people. South Dakota has uh, very few voters. I got more votes in my seat for shadow senator than the U.S. Senator from North Dakota did. I mean, maybe they, they could use some more voters there, but uh, nobody's going to take that seriously because having voters from one place vote in the elections of another place is just a stupid idea. And it, it's not really worthy of, of any serious consideration. Well, I understand that the bill itself redraws the boundaries of D.C. as we know it currently, and it repeals the 23rd Amendment could you explain to our viewers how D.C. would be set up as its own state under the bill that passed out of the committee? Absolutely. It redraws the boundaries formally of what is the federal district, but not necessarily how we don't know it. Because right now there's an area called the National Capital Service Area, which is officially what the federal district really is. It's where the federal government mows the grass, picks up the trash, polices it with its own federal officers as opposed to local D.C. police. And what we do is we simply shrink the federal district to the part of the District of Columbia that's actually federal. And so you would think that for Republicans who are always talking about making government smaller, more efficient, cutting red tape, cutting bureaucracy, that they would be all for it. Uh, but that's what this bill does. So just like you have a small part uh, of Rome that actually is where the Vatican is, uh, the part that is actually federal stays federal. Congress retains its exclusive jurisdiction. Nobody actually lives there. And that's why we repeal the 23rd Amendment, because we're not going to give a federal district with nobody living in it, except maybe one family in the White House, three electoral votes. We want to give those three electoral votes to the residents of the new state. And more importantly, the uh, Electoral College would represent and recognize D.C. residents for their population. Right now, the 23rd Amendment ties D.C.'s presidential electors to the population of the state of Wyoming. So uh, it, it corrects really two imbalances. Well, during the markup, there was another Republican committee member who was saying that the federal government shouldn't pay for any of D.C.'s expenses anymore if they become their own state. 
he mentioned pensions. So I wanted to ask you what you think about that. Should the federal government still be paying D.C.'s expenses or should D.C. cover all their own expenses if they become their own state? Let me be clear. D.C. should be covering all of its own expenses going forward once we become a state. Uh, right now, D.C. residents pay federal taxes, the highest per capita in the nation, by the way, in more than 22 other states. So we contribute $4 billion to the federal treasury. And because I'm just a shadow senator and not a voting senator, believe me, D.C. doesn't get its fair share of federal dollars in spending back because I can't horse trade on appropriations bills the way uh, the voting senators can. Uh, but let me say this. Uh, the plan will incur all of the costs for D.C.'s judicial system back to the taxpayers of the District of Columbia. Right now, taxpayers in the 50 states are uh, paying for that. So we want the rights that come with being a state. We accept the responsibilities that come from being a state. And that includes uh, paying for our own court system. How many senators do you estimate are supporting the bill right now? We have 45 official on-the-record sponsors and supporters in the United States Senate. That is the highest number we've ever had, uh, and that is literally five votes short of being able to pass the bill. Now, remember, every bill in the U.S. Senate, you pass it with only 51 votes, but, of course, under the current filibuster rules, uh, there's an argument that certain types of bills may need 60 votes to close debate and proceed uh, to a 51-vote uh, margin. Uh, that's a separate issue. I think we have a good argument that statehood, the admission of new states, should be exempt from the filibuster because that's what the framers intended. You know, it was the framers that said you needed a two-thirds majority to remove a president from office following an impeachment or a supermajority to recommend an amendment to the new states. But when the framers themselves wrote the Constitution, they said simple majority was the threshold for the admittance of new states. I think that's what we should be following. We should be honoring the intent of the framers who never intended for the admission of new states to be subject to the filibuster. Are you hearing that Democrats are going to try eliminating the filibuster as a way to get statehood through, or do you think the filibuster is going to stay intact? Look, whether you make the filibuster uh, intact for legislation overall is separate from whether you want to treat new states and the admission of new states the way the framers intended in the first place. So uh, we'll see. Look, we don't have all 50 senators sponsoring the bill yet. We have five to go. I think when we get there, uh, it's time for a serious discussion on that issue. But, you know, I, I'm not giving up on uh, Republicans. I think that there are still some principled Republicans serving in the United States Senate, not as many as I would like to see. Um, and whether you're for the bill or against the bill, I think it's wrong uh, to use an arcane parliamentary trick like the filibuster to keep such an important question by being voted on. So hopefully that won't happen. Well, Senator Strauss, I want to thank you for coming on the show and giving us the latest on statehood. When we come back, we have Dr. Dave Bratt. He's the dean of the Liberty University School of Business, and he joins us next. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Joining us now on the show is former Virginia Congressman Dave Bratt. He's an economist, and he currently serves as dean of the School of Business at Liberty University. We've had many great interviews over the years, a congressman in the halls of Congress, and it's great to see you again. Hey, thanks, Nicholas. Great to be on. So when you were in Congress, you were a, uh, you know, very involved in fiscal issues. You often talked about the debt and the deficit. And, I mean, we've seen, what, uh, $6 trillion spent during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and yeah. it's not going anywhere, the spending. They're talking about this infrastructure plan, the Democrats. It could be $2 trillion. So I want to ask you, what's the rising deficit and debt due to the average uh, person? How should they view the deficit and the debt? Yeah. So what is it? what happens in their lives? What's the best way you could explain kind of how they should be looking at these numbers and thinking about them and uh, understanding the situation. Yeah, sorry, I just had a little glitch. But yeah, the, the, the basic way they should think about it, uh, it I'm going to give kind of an unorthodox answer because uh, the financial numbers uh, don't matter anymore to most people because they can't comprehend what they mean. But the best way to see what it means for your family and for the middle class is to look back at the 08 financial crisis. Uh, because that's what happens when you run up too much stimulation, right? The Fed, the Federal Reserve System printed uh, too much money in 04, 05, created a bubble. All the money went to real estate. You had real estate corruption uh, causing a financial collapse uh, that crushed uh, the American middle class. The elites uh, walked away from it. No one went to jail. And so it's it's kind of the difference between the, the financial uh, piece of the economy, the stock market, uh, and that's kind of the superficial piece. The real piece that matters is the underlying economy. Uh, that's the part that produces real stuff like refrigerators and cars and uh, technology, et cetera. Uh, and that's the part that's not growing at all, right? The Democrats are, are basically just saying, look, let's borrow $5 trillion from our rich uncle And uh, so we're richer. Uh, We just got $5 trillion from our rich uncle. So that's that's great. And it is true, statistically, your income goes up by $5 trillion because it's uh, money you got in your pocket right now. Uh, But they never tell you you have to pay it back. And you got to pay it back with interest, and that's going to cripple our kids. And so uh, we're borrowing uh, to pump up a very dead economy where we're injecting stimulus into a corpse, basically. Uh, And that corpse uh, is not growing uh, in real terms. And that is going to hurt our children for real. That's a guaranteed outcome. And so uh, I I hate to uh, paint too stark a picture, uh, but that is that is the true harm. The financial elites will walk away unscathed. The middle class will inherit an awful economy uh, where uh, the whole economy, of course, is now structured for the elites. Right. A big automobile, big airline, big bank, big tech, big government, big everything, because the left can control uh, the big, you know, like you're seeing the Fortune 100, the woke companies. And they're doing this to our country. And and the Democrats, suburban voters are allowing this to happen. It's incomprehensible. 
Well, the Democrats in Congress are saying that the stimulus spending during the pandemic is to help the middle class. Are you saying that in the end it actually could backfire and hurt the middle class? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, the uh, the, the left includes now, without any debate, the big six tech firms. And they're all concerned about the poor and everything, right? So those big six tech firms have a market cap bigger than all of the European firms together. So we're telling the middle class, uh, look, we just shut down the economy by fiat. Oops, we goofed up. We probably didn't really need to do that. Uh, we crushed your family. We crushed small business. Uh, and we're favoring big business by the day. Everything we do up in the swamp is for big business. Uh, but we're going to make it up for you. We care about you. We're going to give you a $1,000 check. Uh, good luck uh, running your family on that. Right? And so, yeah, it, the whole thing, while the billionaire class and the multi-billionaire class are making money uh, like crazy. And so uh, they're, they're just throwing out the $1,000 check as a small giveaway the billionaires are laughing all the way to the bank. They're being protected. Uh, they're so powerful. They can, uh, you know, take away our First Amendment rights to free speech all the way up to the president of the United States to show how powerful uh, that group is. They're enriching themselves. They say they care about the poor. Uh, there's no evidence of that. Some of these firms are doing uh, business with the Chinese Communist Party, who's got concentration camps running right now uh, to the tune of a million to two million. Uh, people created in the image of God working for them as slave labor and on and on. And I could go on and on all day with the hypocrisy of our elites uh, and the, the lack of principles uh, that they actually follow. It's it's incredible. Well, I wanted to ask you also something as the dean of the business school. Uh, so I yeah. wanted to get your take on something that the CEO of Whole Foods, uh, John Mackey, said during an event that I covered, it stuck with me. He argued that universities aren't doing enough to teach students about the benefits of capitalism, and he called it conscious capitalism. Uh, he yeah. says that the academic community is generally hostile uh, to business. What's your reaction sure. to his assessment there? No, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, just look at Europe, right? And Europe preceded us by about 30 or 40 years on the intellectual history, right? So that the Marxists took over the European universities. Uh, the Marxists, the neo-Marxists now control uh, most of higher ed. Uh, the real damage is done at K to 12, right? Because if you can teach the kids at that level, it doesn't matter later on. If you develop kids morally and intellectually at a young age, uh, they learn how to learn. That's the important part. And that, that of course, is not happening. And then it's just, you know, just follow the people say, well, rat, rat's exaggerating on this Marxist thing. Oh, really? OK, so here's the Marxist playbook. Uh, there is no God. And so let's take God out of the public schools. Uh, there is no uh, there are no transcendent ideas. Let's get rid of objective truth. Uh, there's no such thing as ethics. That's a superstructure invented by elites to repress the poor. This is all straight Marx, right? This I'm just basically quoting Marx. Uh, so let's not teach uh, ethics anymore at, at all, right? And once you take away God, absolute truth, and ethics, business is untethered, right? It, it, it was it, the old elites always kind of had, a, you know, at worst, a, a noblesse oblige, right? I'm going to make my billions like Rockefeller, but I'm going to well, leave Congress behind a legacy. I'm going to have to. Library. I'm going to have to actually leave it right there. We we got to go to sure. the next segment. We have more coming up. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the show. Joining me now is the news editor at JustTheNews.com, Joe Weber. Joe, thanks for coming in and going through some of the headlines we have up at Just The News. Thanks for having me, Nick. So the House Judiciary Committee, they voted this week to approve the federal commission to study reparations uh, for slavery and recommend uh, remedies. So I did that story on how the pay grade in there, it's GS-18, that pay grade actually was phased out starting in uh, 1978. They haven't used that pay grade in years, yet the bill hasn't been changed uh, for decades. No. No. So what does that say about the legislative process we have in Congress? I don't know. I mean, it's, it was obviously rewritten here um, in the past couple um, weeks, but this has been around since 1978, since uh, Congressman Conyers was uh, in, in Congress. So it's been a while there. And all of a sudden, you know, um, there's been a lot of talk about it. And then there's hastily written it, not even up to date yet. So it's, you've covered it more than I have. You can tell me why. If you have any more insight than I have, I don't understand it. It's wild. We'll see if they update it. I read the version that they passed out of committee, and it still says GS-18. So uh, let me ask you, too, about what's happening with Supreme Court reform. Do you see this bill going anywhere that the Democrats are pushing to add four justices to the uh, court? I do not. I think Nancy Pelosi made that pretty clear yesterday when she says that uh, she was not going to put the bill up as it was. Um, as David Brody uh, pointed out, you know, she's an astute vote counter. She probably knew she didn't have the votes. And at least if she might have had them in the House, uh, they certainly weren't going to happen in the Senate. Uh, maybe she's waiting to bide some more time here to find out what that uh, Biden commission, the bipartisan Biden commission will do. Uh, that's my only guess to that. We have about 30 seconds left. There's a refugee cap, right, that the Biden administration is going to implement. Uh, what's the latest on that? Well, there's been some breaking news now that um, reporting that some sources are telling CNN and some other major news gathering operations that President Biden is not going to do that. President Trump, former President Trump, had said it at about 15,000. They wanted it to go as high as 62,000. We're getting some pressure from some of the progressive Democrats. Is that not true? Yeah, there's been some pressure. So maybe that's why the announcement is happening. But I want to thank you, Joe, for coming on the show. And we've got more coming up. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back, everyone. We've reached the end of the show. Joining me now is Anna Perez, Real America's voice correspondent. Anna, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. 
So let me ask you about a story you're following regarding media bias. I understand that a leader in the Black Lives Matter movement has made a home purchase, and there's some controversy around it. But the story is not really getting out there fully. Could you explain a little bit about what's going on? Right. Well, the story is about um, co-founder of VLM, Patrice Cullors, who evidently bought a $1.4 million home in Topanga Ca uh, Canyon, which is in Los Angeles. Um, she's getting a lot of criticism because she bought this in a very white area as opposed to, you know, the black areas that the BLM movement tends to espouse. Um, and what's interesting here is that when New York Post reported on this and the Daily Mail reported on this, a lot of people went to share it on Facebook recently, but they were unable to because they got the message that it violated their community guidelines. Um, and the interesting part about this is that while they could not share the New York Post or the Daily Mail's report on this story, they could share from other more left-leaning outlets, such as Black Enterprises. They were still able to share from there. Um, and this, of course, comes also after Twitter um, recently suspended Jason Whitlock, who's a sports writer, um, for trying to share the same story from the New York Post. Well, thank you so much for explaining what's going on there. We'll see if Facebook or Twitter puts out a statement addressing uh, why they've decided to do this. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for coming in. Okay, thanks for having me. Well, that's all the time we have for today's edition of The Water Cooler. Thanks for spending your time with us this afternoon. Tune in again next week when David brings you another great lineup of newsmakers. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Palacy, and have a great day.